0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day.
1: Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Sir Lawrence Friedman. Sir Lawrence is one of the leading historians dealing with the history of war. He is the author of numerous acclaimed books and is Professor Emeritus of War Studies at King's College, London and today we're discussing his latest book, Command, The Politics and Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Sir Lawrence. Good to be with you. Sir Lawrence, uh, what is the thesis of your book? Um, well, it, it has a couple
2: of purposes, uh, and maybe one piece. Um, so one of the purposes was to cover means of looking at conflicts post 1945 mean an awful lot of the military history concentrates on the first and second world wars but I wanted to explore more the military history of the uh, post-war period secondly the issue of command is one that took me for for a long time um following from my past Christine uh, strategy command is the point where strategy has to be implemented where choices have to be made and orders given. And then the thesis, I think, is a a challenge to the idea that there are separate civilian and military domains uh, in warfare so that the politicians are the ones who uh, decide on the objectives and then we must leave it to the military uh, uh, to meet the objectives in practice. Uh, I think... I uh, think this is, comes over in the book. Um, the setting of objectives has to be done with military advice to make sure that they are force, but equally that when a war is being fought, you can't really expect the politicians to stay completely out of it because uh, they're the ones who have to deal with the consequences if things go wrong. So uh, it, it, a lot of this is about civil-military relations
1: uh and how we work in practice rather than in some idealized way. What do you mean exactly by the term command as employed in the book? Um, in order, um, the, the, the thing about
2: command um, is it, it's not a request uh, or a suggestion. Uh, it has a lot of authority behind it, it comes from the same word as mandate, uh, the same etymology as mandate, so that the the advantage of command uh, Is it, that people should uh, should jump and do do as they're told. That's what that's what the idea conveys. And that if they don't, then they're challenging not only uh, the specifics of the order, but, but the authority structure behind them. So so the, the, there's there's something quite special about being in a position to command. And I think it goes a bit beyond that because normally. We use the word not solely, but need to use it to discuss military matters, where, in a sense, you have to command people to do things that are in a way unnatural, both in terms of being prepared to kill and being put in a position where you might get killed. So, uh, and that's what needs needs the, the special authority and urgency that the, the, the term suggests.
1: How does command and how sorry how does command operate indeed differ if at all in democratic states as opposed to non-democratic states?
2: well i think the the, the, the uh an important difference which stems from this point about authority structures it, if you're um an state or authoritarian state you expect uh your your orders to be obeyed pretty automatically, and you see dissent as a big danger. If there's a way in which people are challenging your your orders on a regular basis, that can seem to be very threatening. So the whole point about this sort of um, regime is, is that it depends on um, uh, it depends on orders being uh, obeyed without question. But in democratic countries, we also require military orders to be obeyed, uh, and get concerned when they're not. But at the same time, we accept that that, that there may be room for conversation, divisions, we accept that that the politics of of our societies are more pluralistic, sometimes quite divided, and that will be reflected in in the way that military operations play out. So one of the big differences in practice is that uh, when you get right to the top, because the book doesn't just look at uh, terms of the general's command, it looks at the political leader's command as well. A political leader who is thinking all the time about their position and doesn't want to be challenged they end up making some pretty terrible decisions uh, because there's nobody in the position to say that's not a very good idea. we thought about this and that to, to provide the challenge, whereas in the democratic countries, you at least hope that there's a possibility of the challenges being made uh, we can all think of instances where there might have been more challenge than normal uh, it, it doesn't mean that there are opportunities to to question what what leaders are doing Some would say that the advantage of authoritarian leaders is that they can take bolder decisions because they can be less transparent and, and that may be true but bolder systems aren't necessarily always the good ones.
1: How did General MacArthur's personality make his clash with clash with President Truman much more likely?
2: Oh, I think MacArthur uh, was what well, you'd call a prima donna. He he was uh, uh, he he felt himself to be an unassailable position. He he wasn't just a, a general; he was uh, a high-profile political figure who actually had hardly been in the United States for ages, but had um, spent his time uh, fighting uh, the Pacific War, uh, only from Australia, and then uh, had been uh, put in charge of Japan. Mm-hmm. And I, I was then um, fighting the Korean War. So he just felt uh, himself to be unsanable, very arrogant, uh, pretty contemptuous of all politicians, uh, and. Not very interested in the, in in the generality of the challenges facing uh, American foreign policy uh, at the start of uh, the 1950s when the, when the clash came. He uh, he didn't really, in, in and Truman seemed to be a rather nondescript person. He he uh, was a temporary occupant of of, of the White House, but I think he saw in was
1: in rather grander terms. Why exactly did President Truman dismiss MacArthur, and why were he and the Joint Chiefs of Staff so reluctant to do so?
2: Well, I mean, the, the problem was well, two, two, two features of MacArthur. First, he uh, uh, he was a high profile political figure with a lot of support in the Republican Party, so it was clear that any time you, you challenged him, there was going to be some sort of political reaction. But he'd been pretty successful. I mean, as far as uh, everyone was concerned, if you go to about o- October nineteen fifty, um, he, he first has felt stabilise the position in the uh, in, in the Korean War, and then with the Inchon landings, um, has uh, transformed the situation so that the North Koreans are the ones on the defensive. Uh, and he had the opportunity to um, to push uh, to a point where North Korea may cease to exist as, a, as an independent entity. The problem was he pushed too far, so that uh, and the and the Joint Chiefs had worried um, uh, that he that he was uh, that he was he was disobeying the order that had been given him, which was to. Uh, avoid going to the Yalu River, dividing Korea from from China, so this brought China in in a catastrophic way for American forces. So I think the um, uh, uh, the particular issue which led to his dismissal dismissal was not actually that, that he, he failed uh, at this critical test as a general, but was that he kept on giving speeches. Uh, which dissented from American foreign policy, from the Truman administration's foreign policy. Uh, and, and though I think Truman was, saw himself as sacking McCartney just simply because of insubordination, the actual language used um, was, was that he had to leave because he didn't share the, the foreign policy framework of the administration. Uh, basically he was prepared for a war with China, which the a wider war with China um, which the administration didn't want
1: Why did the French CNC in Indochina, General Navarre, make B- Dian Bien Phu such an important battle why was, he, why was he so reluctant to withdraw from such an exposed position once the Viet Minh's capability to bring up heavy artillery was confirmed
2: well, it's a compact story. Uh, I mean, Navarre, um, the first problem that Navarre had was though that he was a decorated and charismatic, uh, very new, clever general, uh, he didn't know Indochina very much. So he, he always thought he was taking advice and those who were taking advice from were at all compressed by him. I and mean, secondly, um, he was trying to work out the strategy for the French forces in, in Indochina at a time when um, the government w- was basically losing the will to carry on with the fight uh, and starting to think about negotiations with the communists and the communists understood that the logic of that was that they would need to um, uh, strengthen their position for any negotiations, but. Uh, and I never quite pick, picked it up, the, the, the decision to uh, make a fight of, uh, at the NBNC sort of followed a previous uh, operation that had gone relatively well for the French, whereby they picked a spot that they could defend and supply. Um, and, and then after they'd beaten the you know, the Vietnam of the Communists back, then they could withdraw from it quite easily. But there was a confusion about what they were trying to do at Diagnan Phu. Were they uh, or Were they just trying to uh, make a point that they could assert their presence in this part of uh, Vietnam, or were they trying to find a way to mount offensive operations? So there was a, a, a confusion as well to which, which did need help. And then there was, uh, he suggests, um, an underestimation of the opponent, and in particular their ability to bring artillery into position. But he, uh, I mean, that wasn't confirmed until the day the, the battle started, although it started to be suspected. And I think the main criticism of Mazar would be that uh, he, he could he, he had a basis for withdrawing, before things got too difficult, or he had the basis for reinforcing, uh, which would um, possibly have allowed the French to hold the NBN food, but he did neither. So he, he sensed that the position was not very satisfactory, um, and that there were vulnerabilities developing, but he didn't act on that. So then when, the, when the battle began, it soon became affa- apparent so the, the French uh, artillery position was not as superior than the, as they'd hoped uh, and expected. Um, but it wasn't too late to bring in reserves. But then he got too um, uh, pessimistic about what could happen. So when there was still a chance to bring in reserves, he didn't. And then eventually again there was no point in bringing in reserves, he did. Which uh, led to a whole lot of people being killed and captured unnecessarily.
1: Were the French more successful militarily in Algeria than in Indochina, and if so, why? I mean, they were militarily; they were successful um,
2: in, Indo- in in Algeria because it was easier battles for them to fight. It was closer to the home. There was uh, more of a conviction that uh, Algeria was not just a colony, but a real part of France um and uh the enemy had uh, sort of overplayed their hand by uh, in the battle for battlefield uh, in, in indulging in some free terrorism which created a situation in which the uh, government turned to the paris to um uh, to, to deal with this with challenge ruthlessly and it was the ruthlessness of their methods that are now most notorious but they they did at the time work they they um, uh, they, they crushed um, the military capability of, of um, the FLN the, the, the opposition group that they forced the FLN to um, move outside of Algeria to Tunisia but in a way that was part of the problem because the, then the uh, Their opponents started to mobilize politically, rely on more on demonstrations, international support, and so on. Um, And eventually, de Gaulle realized the French position was untenable, that you just couldn't, by military alone, hold on to uh, a place where, where the population. The bulk of the population wanted you out, even though there were a million um, uh, of uh, settlers who really, uh, very much wanted to adhere uh, to state parts of France. So this was an enormous crisis in American in French democracy, um, leading to uh, assassination attempts, coup attempted coups, and and so on. And it's a good demonstration of the point that. A military victory by itself is rarely sufficient. You need a political victory to go with it. And that's what they never got in Algeria.
1: So that, more or less, is the reason why General de Gaulle decided to abandon Algérie Française. he abandoned Algeria, yes. I mean, he
2: got the power because of Algerie Française, but he never quite endorsed it. Um, the thing about de Gaulle was that he you had to stay enigmatic at all times. Um and he and when he realised that the French position just couldn't hold all the time, um, he he moved very swiftly to open up negotiations um to, to give Algeria independence and this, you know that's uh, what caused the fury amongst the uh settled population.
1: But not amongst the French people generally. How much uh, were the tensions behind the civilians and the military, as recounted from the example of the Cuban Missile Crisis, normal in a democratic state?
2: I think they were quite normal. They were exaggerated to a degree because um, of of the of tense relationships between uh, the, the civilians and the civilians in that virus. Robert McNamara and uh, and the military, who appear uh, contemptuous contemptuously the military, people um, generally hawkish, uh, but they're not impressed either Kennedy, or McCart uh, or, or, or McNamara with the advice that they would be given. So the relations were pretty cool, and this was reflected in a number of exchanges that up to the announcement of the blockade and then the implementation of the blockade all that being said um, Admiral Allison, the chief of the naval operations um, yeah, was in the end uh, followed uh, civilian control of the device uh, he just tried to give his, his, uh, his command as much latitude as possible in meeting it so though the episode showed all the tensions at work, in the end, the two, the civilians and the military, behaved perfectly properly towards each other uh, when uh, actually implementing the, the policy.
1: So in point of fact, uh, notwithstanding these tensions, uh, the, the fact of the matter was that they, they did not per se negatively impact either operations or policy in the crisis.
2: No, I don't think they did, uh, and uh, I mean it, it, it. could have been different in in if if the conflict had developed in other ways. It was helped that it would resolved quite quickly. Um, but I think the general feature I uh, struck me very much, in, in many of the cases examined in the book, the uh, adjustments possible, and people can up uh, the. And heated uh, these strong words said, Uh because he's who cares seems to me to be seems to the point. Uh, I think not
1: uh, the if
2: uh,
1: uh, so you do it so Lawrence. Yes, please and go he- ahead.
2: Yeah, I don't mean, so think i a negative get to feature um looking for documents. in the end uh, the uh, if you look at what the new US uh, did during the uh, crisis, it, it managed to blockade uh, as it had been asked to do with, um, with some sensitivity.
1: Is it not? In a sense, true that Eric Sharon was a sort of Israeli MacArthur with perhaps better political antenna? Yeah, he had
2: some of the uh, arrogance and self assuredness and uh, popular uh, appeal of a MacArthur, um, and in the end, was more successful politically because eventually he became um, not only. The minister uh, in, in successive governments But eventually prime minister So he, he had that success But on the other hand um, His political judgement uh, on, on the big issues was often um, Wanting He was a brilliant uh, Tactical operational general He had the loyalty of his men He was very audacious um, Imaginative um, in, in, in the decisions He took, but he he was chronically insubordinate, um, always challenging those above him, politically or militarily. Uh, And of course, in the 1973 war, you have this odd feature that he he actually was called back to be a divisional commander after, um, uh, as a reservist, uh, having just started a new political party uh, Likud in, in opposition to the, to the Labour governing party, this, this uh, hampered his relations all, all the way through the war. So it's a very particular case, Charon. When eventually he, he was able to design and lead a major operation himself, which was to be led to the um, invasion of, um, of Lebanon, it was catastrophic. Uh, he he. he um, overestimated what the the christian baronites would do for um for israel um didn't really understand the lebanon as a country um and that led to a catastrophic result which i think we're dealing with consequences of that to this day that's what led to the rise of hezbollah for example so um, Sharon is, again, a good example of somebody who's militarily very astute, but well, well, particularly, um, at least uh, in all of these matters, a very poor judgment.
1: How would you characterize President Nixon's relations with the Pentagon, and how did it influence policy during North Vietnam's Easter offensive of 1972?
2: Well, Nixon, relations with almost everybody, was characterised by suspicion and uh, and secrecy and um, uh, and his own sort of difficulty in relating to to these people. Uh, so he, he didn't trust the Pentagon. He thought it had um, he didn't trust Maldon Laird, who was the Secretary of Defense, uh, and was always seeing. Thoughts and uh, and, and insubordination. Uh and that was also compounded by a, a real policy difference. So when the um, when the uh, North Vietnamese mounted the invasion of South Vietnam, uh, his, his, his generals wanted to concentrate very much on, on the, using air power. The available power to defeat the the invading forces to attack
0: um,
2: those that were coming out uh, of their defenses whereas Nixon wanted to use them to attack the um uh, uh Hanoi, I know eventually really the big North Vietnamese cities to coerce them in fact into into a peace deal. Um, to to, to give the Paris peace talks some impetus uh, which he did uh, although the the deal was didn't accomplish all that he would have wished it to accomplish so what's interesting is the the personality factors and political factors here which in a way poison the relationships and lead to the suspicion but behind it all there was a very big strategic question which is where do you, how do you use your air power to the greatest effectiveness um, when you're both trying to stop an army on the march uh, and trying to coerce um, the enemy's capital to change their policy? So, it, 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 the, uh, and actually, you know, the president he got his way. So you, you have the bombing of Hanoi and, and Haiphong, the mining of Haiphong uh, uh, as well. So it was, um, uh, and that was possible because actually by, after a while, there was an a fair power around to, to, to meet both the immediate demands of stopping the invasion and the longer-term demands of coercive policies.
1: Would it be true to say that in all the conflicts examined in the book that the Falklands War had the most harmonious civil-military interaction? Um. It was pretty, it was pretty harmonious. Um,
2: it, 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 I mean, there were tensions in the command relationships, but these were largely um, uh, at, at the front end in the, in, 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 uh, in the South Atlantic. Uh, in London, you had a situation where the Prime Minister, with no military experience, um, was quite alone in some ways. Um, didn't have sort of the large status that the American President House supporting him at all times uh, uh, and was very reliant on military advice. I think got on very well with her senior military advisors, particularly Admiral Sir Terence Lewin, who was Chief of Defence Staff, um, who had a good personal relationship with her, and, and she came to trust his judgment. He, he you know, she was fortunately for her, fortunately, I guess for the UK, he, he had quite a, a shrewd sense of, of the politics of the situation as well as the, uh, as the, as well as the military requirements. And because he was an Admiral himself, he understood the naval operations that were going on. Whereas, you um, um, uh. If it had been more of an army operation, he, he, he might have had, had to defer to others more. So I, I think it, it, it was quite harmonious. Uh, it worked quite well. Although there were, uh, that meant that the relations between, you like, London and the South Atlantic sometimes got a bit strained because um, they, did, in the South Atlantic itself, they didn't quite understand why you
0: Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off. Why
1: was the Russian campaign in the first Chechen war so abysmal, and why was the campaign in the second war so much better, militarily speaking?
2: Um. Well, I mean, the the Russian army in the mid nineties was just in a terrible state. Um, Russian society, economy, politics was. Uh, in, in a pretty dire position, there wasn't enough money around um, people were demoralised the military were demoralised and weren't being paid properly the conscripts weren't healthy and uh, again you have the, the standard problem uh, of underestimating the opponent in this case the were perfectly well prepared for, for the Russian military when they came to them. So the thing got off to a bad start uh, from day one and um was never really seemed to be with the uh, the effort that had been be uh was that was into defeating the Chech That and eventually you even would have to argue that, that it was a victory for the rebel um, Putin's war, um, first war had uh, had many features that, that, that didn't particularly reflect well uh, on the competence of the Russian army, but there were two aspects that were more effective. First, uh, the readiness was pretty brutal, um, then the battles for Grozny, Day, the the song of Jackson, secondly, a divided rule policy. So, um, they found captions that were able to work with with Russia, uh, as well as those who were uh, who were adamantly opposed. So it was by this time the Russians' state was more together. It was more competent, um, but it was also more ruthless in some ways um, and more astute in in uh, in making sure that it didn't face a
1: united Chechen opposition. Is Putin's war in Ukraine merely another example of a military exercise similar to the first Chechen war? And why did the Russian military agree to such an abysmal operational plan in the first place?
2: Well, that's a good question. Um, I think, again, you have the same problem of total underestimation of the opponent, and not just that they're not as uh, capable militarily uh, as the Russians, but also um, uh, the, Ukraine was not even a proper state that it, that it lacked the capacity um, to fight. The, the, the government was illegitimate. But the, the, there were inherent divisions between the West and the Eastern country, and so on. Um, so the, the whole Operation uh, now talking is about the invasion twenty twenty two, but it goes back to the first uh, attempts to destabilize Ukraine as well. It, it, the, the whole thing was was launched on, on a poor assessment of, of, of why Ukraine would fight and and how it would fight. One thing is went wrong as they did from day one of the Russian military operation. They were never really able to recover their position so things carried on going wrong. But um, they still have yet to go right for
1: Russia. Why was General, I'm sorry, what explains the fraud relations between uh, NATO head Wesley General Wesley Clark and his um, superiors, in the Pentagon, and how, if at all, did that affect uh, policy and strategy operations during the Kosovo War? Well, I mean, part of the problem lies with the fact
2: um, of the uh, position of the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, which is obviously position first uh, established by General now, uh, and the and the... Uh, It's a dual role. On the one hand, you're the leader of uh, American uh, forces in in Europe, American army in Europe, and uh, sector-answerable directly to the Pentagon. On the other hand, you're NATO's Senior General. In that role, you, you have to work with the NATO Secretary General and all the other members of the Alliance. And Uh, Clark uh, was far more committed to a very sort of forward policy uh, an active policy in Kosovo than his superiors in the Pentagon who were worried that this was uh, um, something the United States shouldn't really be doing uh, and it really had to do it it should be very much sort of limited liability whereas Clark's view was that once you were in there, you had to make sure you won, and that is necessary. And the big argument on that, uh, as they was, was how much you deployed the threat to use land forces rather than just rely on air forces. Um, and on that, uh, Clark was probably closer to the UK Prime Minister Tony Blair than he was to, um. President Clinton in the US. So the were inherent tensions, and that part of this is again comes down to personalities. Um, uh, Wes Clark is quite a cerebral general, um, very well educated, uh, perfectly brave. I mean, he, he, he'd uh, he had his time in Vietnam, um, but but was not. Seen um, uh, in 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 the by the Joint Chiefs as being uh one of them, he was seen as uh, uh, as being a bit arrogant and distant. So so the personality factors contributed again to to policy differences. But most of these times, when you see that, there's there's an underlying question of strategy involved, and it's not it's not just a fact that these guys don't get on. But the commander in were incredibly complicated, um, and this certainly didn't help.
1: Why was General Clark at loggerheads with General Sir Michael Jackson? Oh, well, as was a particular incident. The, um, when, the, um,
2: when Milosevic, the Serb the leader, eventually capitulated for a variety of reasons, where a, a peacekeeping force was supposed to go in, which General Jackson had been preparing for NATO, it was sitting in um, Macedonia. And um, uh, the Russians were, who p- 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 had supported, were Nazi supporters of, of, of Milosevic, and though in the end they, they'd helped to put the pressure on him, thought that they. Could reassert their position authority by taking Pristina Airport uh, first, um, uh, and in the sense of using that to potentially divide Kosovo, um, uh, uh, maybe lead to a partition. Uh, and Clark correctly, I think, saw so that's what the Russians were up to, um, but. Clark uh, um, Jackson believed that uh, he could handle it without having to be very desperately confrontational with the Russians, which indeed, you know, he, he was able to do. Um, but he was mainly helped by the fact that uh, Clark could encourage the other NATO countries not to let Russian aircraft fly over their territories for a union. Troops, uh, troops to proceed airport. So actually, the the, um, the the Russian units that went there were were rather stranded, and that's how the the crisis was diffused. But I think again, tired people working at different time zones trying to sort out what was going on uh, ended up shouting at each other quite a lot. Uh, with Jackson famously saying he wasn't going to start World War Three. For and Jackson, also used his dual appointment, both as a, a British general and as a NATO
1: general, to um, to give himself more latitude. Who do you assign major responsibility for the failure to capture and or kill Bin Laden in the mountains of Tora Bora in two thousand one?
2: Well, I mean Bin Laden. Uh, it prepared Bora as a sort of redoubt, as uh, a place to escape to, and um, uh, uh, when, I, when it was clear that the, the Taliban was going to lose and that coalition and the northern alliance was sweeping in, uh, he moved there. The basic problem was, was that um, in the defeat of the Taliban the Americans had managed to work very closely with Afghans to have their own agenda, their own reasons for defeating the Taliban, not least to to um, uh, provide the government of the country. Whereas in Tora Bora, there the, the wasn't the same sort of quality of Afghan alliance. So called Eastern Alliance was very cobbled together. Um, lots of internal provisions. They're not very clear to what the Americans were were trying to do, and uh, so, so when it was apparent that the Bin Laden was there, um, they were not particularly keen at taking great risks themselves. Yet um, the American um, the American military weren't also weren't prepared to take great risks, and you have a very particular issue arising where General Franks, the American uh, central commander, um, was pretty wary about uh, General Mattis and his Marines, uh, who, who was the only force in a position to get in numbers to Tora Bora, where they might be able to cut him off um, and stop him getting to Pakistan, which is where eventually he ended up. So I think you you just had an operation that was uh, led in a rather erratic way with the CIA taking a lot of the early initiative, calling in airstrikes, which alerted um, bin Laden and his followers to the risk, but didn't actually take them out. Um, And, you know, the whole thing ended up with with bin Laden um, escaping and, uh, only a lot of his uh, Al Qaeda people were killed, but but but
1: not uh, not Bin Laden. That that came much later. What explains the failures of the British occupation of Basra in the Iraq War? Well, I mean there are a number of explanations for the failure in
2: Basra. I think the um, the basic problem was that the British Army were never really committed to. Uh, sustained for long in Iraq after the 2003 war. They wanted to be part of the big operation to show that they could play a role. Um, They performed perfectly effectively in 2003, um, but then found themselves in occupying power and found themselves in charge of the area around Basra. And I think then they were a bit complacent because it's largely a Shia area and they thought would be more sympathetic to the British, but what they did was, was allow the uh, extremist militias to take over, including taking over the police force effectively, um, and so their own position became quite vulnerable. They didn't have the numbers or the strength or the resources to make a big impact, so they, in the way, just got stranded in the air um, when the um, uh, leader turned on them or wanted to to, to show them who's boss, um, they didn't have much of a response and ended up having to do a deal with, with the militia in order to um, extract their forces from their most vulnerable positions. So it's basically they lost over time they lost their ability to impose their presence and lost control, um, and um, conceded it to uh, to militias. It wasn't really until the Iraqi government was prepared to take them on um, that the
1: situation improved. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Sir Lawrence, what would it be? Um that all
2: military operations have to be understood in a uh, the political the, the, uh, context. I mean, without denying for a second the importance of professionalism in the military, the, the, uh, the technologies and the logistics and all those things which really do make a difference. In the end, you need to be able to work with the government um, to have re- realistic political objectives, uh, and to know strategically when the objectives may have to be changed because the circumstances have changed, uh, or to have an honest appreciation of what has to be done to meet them. So it it's, it's, it really is about the the importance of
1: understanding the the political context of, of military operations. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Sir Lawrence, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to a podcast on the New Books Network, New Books in History. Thank you again, Sir Lawrence, very much. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.